Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, and welcome to the best of My Time Capsule 2020, Part 2. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the second episode of our compilation of the best bits from the guests who've appeared in the first year of this podcast. Not at all complicated, and what a collection it is. From Stephen Fry, our very first guest, to Janet Ellis, Rick Wakeman, Annika Rice, Griff Rees-Jones, Richard Herring, and lots more. A smorgasbord of podcast delights, if you will. Although our Herring isn't actually pickled. At least I don't think he was. So, let's get the party started, as some people are prone to say. Even me, it seems. And listen to our first guest. Comedian and traveller extraordinaire, Griff Rees-Jones. I was very pleased when Griff agreed to be on my time capsule, especially when his first piece of advice to me was this. Michael, whatever you do, don't, don't do Desert Island Desert. <laughs> don't do it, because... <laughs> They rang me up and said, we want you to do it. And I said, uh, oh, how lovely. Uh, and they said, it's in three weeks' time. And I said, I can't do it. I can't do it in three weeks' time. It's going to take me longer to think about the end. <laughs> That's not long enough. <laughs> and, you know, the people who run Desert Island, just the wonderful people, they're so sympathetic to you. When you say, I've had, I'm really having struggles, they say, I know, we, everybody does. Everybody, let's see if we can help you. Where have you got to? Well, I've got it down to sort of 50. OK, let's, let's go through those. <laughs> I'd say you stop there. But you know the worst thing about doing Desert Island is? No. Once you've done it, you can't play it in your head anymore. Oh. No, because you're driving along in the car. Something comes up and you think, oh, this, this wonderful piece of Rigoletto. Is it, that's one. Oh, no, I've done it. I didn't include it. It's too late. <laughs> no, you missed it. <laughs> so your playlist of aid, you've already done it. You can't, you can't go back and go, oh, I'll save that up for when I do Desert Island Disc, because, you know, you've done it. They're not going to ask you that. Quick, we may have hit on the most fantastic programme idea. What? We should definitely get in touch with all the people who've been on Desert Island yeah. Disc and say, would you like to do Desert Island Discs? Two. Revisit it. Where I went wrong. The songs I should have yes, chosen. Yes, just like politicians. What? Just 
In fact, it's a series of books, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it'd be longer than most political... Poly, because that's essentially what political memoirs are. It's just going through, the, I should have done this. This is what we should have done. This was my big achievement. Griff Rees-Jones there. Our next extract is from an episode that we released in the very first week of My Time Capsule, and it's with the brilliant actress Rebecca Front, star of The Day Today, Alan Partridge, The Thick of It, Avenue 5, and, well, dozens of other memorable television shows. Here's Rebecca. Well, I've gone for slightly uncharacteristically for me, actually. I've gone, I've gone quite personal with it. Oh? Um, and I've gone for... I'll stop the recording now. Yeah. <laughs> We're up in my bedroom, <laughs> it's, and now I'm telling you we're going to go personal. Um, yeah, I've, I was trying to think about what you meant about, uh, as I always do with you, Mike, any communication with you, I just afterwards, I think, what was he talking about? <laughs> so I was trying to think what it was that you had in mind. And then I kind of started thinking about snapshot memories. And you know how sometimes a memory just pops into your head from yes. absolutely nowhere. And it's, but it's really clear and really detailed. And yes. I thought maybe those were the things that would be in my time capsule. These slightly random little snapshots that you can describe quite clearly, like you can when you find an old photo and, and you look at it and everything makes sense. And you remember where you got the jumper from and how long you'd had it. And, you know, that you'd had just had an argument with your you know, sibling or something. Um, those kind of memories where it's suddenly very, very clear. And once I started thinking about that, four or five of them quite quickly popped into my head Perfect. so I thought they would be things to put in the time capsule yes no I think that's absolutely right so should we go through chronologically chronologically would work wouldn't it um so chronologically then the first one is um is a childhood one and I was really surprised actually that this one popped into my head because I'm not I, I grew up in a Jewish household and and we never really thought of ourselves as particularly religious, although I think with hindsight we, we did a lot of Jewish stuff. We lit candles on Friday nights and we ate kosher food and things. So I think we were actually probably what people would think of as religious, but we didn't go to synagogue very often. We didn't I didn't think of us as a practicing family. I mean, to this day, if you if you show me a page of Hebrew, I could probably pick out maybe three words of it. You know, I I can stumble through the odd letter, but so I'm not a sort of you know particularly religious Jewish person at all. But one of the first uh, snapshots that popped into my head was of being in synagogue with my family, and I think it was more about the family than the being in synagogue bit. We didn't go regularly, but we would always go once or twice a year for the big festivals. And in a very typically Jewish fashion, um, the biggest of big festivals is the most depressing one, (laughs) which is Yom Kippur, where you'd starve yourself for 25 hours and don't drink anything and just sit in synagogue for as long as you can tolerate. (laughs) Everybody's miserable. Everybody has halitosis and it's all quite grim. Um, But oddly, I quite enjoy it. Um, So we would go every year for Yom Kippur and we'd go for Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year which precedes Yom Kippur. And we'd usually go for two mornings of Rosh Hashanah. And a morning service, by Jewish standards, is relatively uh, concise in that it's a mere four hours long, oh, whereas great, you yeah. know, Yom Kippur Whizzes by. <laughs> rattles along at, <laughs> at 17 or something. So, and, but in the year running up to my brother's bar mitzvah, we went more regularly. We were going probably most Saturdays because my brother would have to be up to speed with his Hebrew and so on. Mm. So we, we just did. And oddly... I quite liked it, I think. I mean, I obviously didn't like it enough to carry on going. I mean, now I'm back to going, <laughs> going to shul twice a year again. But I think as a kid, 
I was predisposed to being slightly holier than thou anyway. And I quite liked the whole drama of it. I liked the sort of, you know, everybody dressed up smartly and the formality of it going and sitting yes. sitting in rows and the, a great deal of time is spent standing up and intoning and being quite serious and sombre and then quite a lot of time is spent sitting down with my dad whispering naughty jokes and trying to make everybody <laughs> laugh because he's got uh, sort of, so you're acting a role yeah i think maybe that's why i liked it yeah because it was it was the public face of the front family yes maybe that is what i liked and then there'd be other things like the men would always wear prayer shawls. They'd wear these these longs. So they'd obviously wear yarmulkes, the, the little skull caps. Mm. But they'd also wear these prayer shawls, which have um, a bit of embroidery on them. And then they have a fringe at the bottom, a sort of silk fringe. When I was younger, I just used to, when I got bored in service, I would sit and plait the <laughs> fringes at the end of my dad's prayer shawl. And dad would find, thought this was very sweet, you know, mm-hmm. so he'd be sitting there kind of, you know, going, oh, I don't want to do in Hebrew. And I'd be just kind of tying knots and then doing like cornrows at the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the So that's sort of the snapshot that popped into my head for the time capsule is that's me sitting thing. next to, sitting in a row with my family and, and everybody's slightly dressed up and my mum wishing she hadn't worn high heels yeah. and me plaiting the fringes. I was a I was brought up Catholic, uh, but I think I probably went through the same experience as you, which is that I would go to mass mm. before I went to school in the morning wow, at the convent. Really? Yes, every morning. When I between about the age of thirteen and fifteen, mm. till I discovered girls, right, uh, and then well, I discovered them, but I couldn't get near them, right. But I would go to to mass in the morning and sit right at the front. Mm. in my school uniform, very cleanly pruned and primmed up and everything. Yeah. And I could feel the eyes of the nuns on my back. Really? So for me, it was Judging all... Judging you? It, no, it was a performance. Oh, I, I could right. feel the admiration. Oh, this beautiful little boy oh. has come here and he's sitting there and he's saying everything so clearly and so That's well. so brilliant. And so, yes. yeah, that whole thing of doing a performance in Performative holiness. Yes. Yeah. Not I, feeling holy at all. I really. do. I, I think one of my associations with going to synagogue, even now, actually, is because cause I, like you, I love singing. And there's a lot of singing in Judaism. And um, I could actually manage to keep up with the songs because when you're following the Hebrew in a song, it, it moves slower yes. than if you're trying to read it in a prayer when people tend to rattle through it and I can't do that. So I could join in with the songs and I could do harmonies and things. And I do, I do remember kind of thinking, I'm not sure how much this is holy and how much is actually just me showing <laughs> that I can do harmonies. Yeah. Ah, the consummate actress from her very early days. Lovely Rebecca Front there. And here's another guest that went out in our very first week. The stand-up comedian Arthur Smith, talking about his dad. What's your first item? Well, it's some yoghurt. Uh, this is, um, as you can see here, Mike, and you can't see if you're listening, but I'm eating some yoghurt. Here we go. Because it always reminds me of my father, because it only appeared yoghurt in about the 70s or something. There was no yoghurt before then. <laughs> and as far as my father was concerned, it was, uh, it was just milk that had gone off. <laughs> and... He always called it, because it used to have an O in it in those days, in the spelling, and he always called it Yoghurt. <laughs> so I, whenever I have yoghurt, I think of Yoghurt and of my father. And I also think of him because even though he despised Yoghurt, if he saw that it was going out of date, he would eat it. 
because he was from the generation who didn't want to waste anything. And also he had spent two and a half years of his life as a prisoner of war, uh, a lot of which he was starving. His weight dropped to six and a half stone and he's about the same size as me, or he was. And um, so he was always very particular. He would never leave a crumb on his plate. If he had a crumb on his tie, he would delicately pick it off and eat it, Mm. which always makes me think of the hard times my father must have had and how lucky I am that I could just have this yoghurt and if I don't really want all of it, I could chuck it away, really, but... And I actually enjoy yoghurt, but my father hated yoghurt, or yoghurt, rather. And so I'm taking some yoghurt with me you in, in the time to, to remind me of my father and to remind myself that how lucky I am that I never have been starving. No. Where was he a prisoner of war? He Well, he was first a prisoner of war in an Italian camp when he, after three months, he got two letters from home from his fiancée one of them saying she was seeing a Canadian airman and the other one written three months later but read by my father immediately after now she'd married him. Oh, my word. So that was a pretty miserable it's time. It's a blow, isn't it, when you're locked up with the Germans with guns? Yeah. And, it, and then, uh, then he worked as slave labour down a copper mine in Saxony and he ended the war in Colditz Castle. Really? Yes, which was... Um, very famous, obviously. It still is quite well known. I mean, there was a film about it in the year of my birth. And then there was a TV series. Although my father never really knew why he was there because it was for officers, really. And his job was to, quote, look after the officers. And <laughs> he had, like, Lord Lassels and various famous people. His job was essentially to wipe the arse of a bunch of old Etonians, <laughs> which, of course, we can continue to do. We all do it, <laughs> even now. Yeah. And now even more so. So what sort of area of the services was he in? He, well, he was in the army, yeah. he, um, but he was captured at the Battle of El Alamein. I got, we got him to write down his memoir before when he retired, so mm. there's an account of the brutal day that he was captured in North Africa. And <clears throat> I took him back to Colditz when he was 70 years old. And we went to the, to the place where he'd been in prison, you know, 45 years before. Did he want to go back? <laughs> oh no I think he was quite up for it uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, part of it at that point had turned into a turned into a hotel and he brilliantly rang down the room service and asked for a shuffle <laughs> he always had a great sense of humour oh, with six extra sheets <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he climbed yeah. down outside out the window yeah <laughs> He was, uh, and I always remember as well when he was talking about how, how hungry they were at the beginning of his imprisonment, how he, they used to eat rats. And I said to him, I said, what does rat taste like, Dad? He said, oh, you know, it's a bit like dog. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, pretty clear. Our next guest burst onto our screens as a Blue Peter presenter, and she's been in our hearts ever since. It's the wonderful Janet Ellis. So let's launch in. What's your first item? Okay, the first item is page 136 of the hymnal, uh, as you find in church or assembly. And the hymn is My Song is Love Unknown. And the reason for choosing that is not because I'm religious, in fact, I'm a humanist, it's because there's always been music in my life 
And there still is, of course, because I noticed some of my family make their living from it. Yes. And I was addicted to musicals. I think I still am. So initially I thought, do I want one of those big old 50s musicals? Do I want West Side Story or Oklahoma? I know all the words, it's easy. And I thought, no, I think the thing that made me feel most connected to music initially was singing hymns because they are big songs. (laughs) They are really big songs. And I was always in the choir at whatever school I happened to fetch up in. So I annoyingly know all the descants and (laughs) even more annoyingly perform them. But there's something about those hymns that is just an instant connection to something quite specific, probably Victorian, to do with an uncomfortable start to the day, school assembly. It's a bit itchy, isn't it? You're Mm. not quite sure, you know, you haven't done the work or you're waiting for the result of that thing or is your favourite girl in three years ahead of you in school today, which used to make a big difference to me. But (laughs) I went to lots of schools as well. But I just... Even now, when the chords strike on the organ or whatever it is, I just think, start of something. And it's music, and it's that music that just immediately connects. Does it take you back to school, then? Yeah, not in a particular school. I went to seven schools, so Mm. my dad was in the army. We moved around a lot. Um, It takes me back, I suppose, to some sort of potential for the day over which you have fairly limited control. Right. Because as a child, you really can't decide much about your life at all, can you? No. And I I like the fact that music has an effect. I mean, it still does massively. And it's the thing I reach for shortly after a book to get me through things. I find it very therapeutic and I love singing along. But there's something about those hymns, which is some, I don't know, it connects to an ancient line of singing, you know, which isn't... It wouldn't be folk music for me. For some people, it probably would be folk music. The yeah. idea of music that has been inherited and that you have a very tenuous connection with, but that you're not necessarily even going to pass on. You know, I can't imagine. But luckily for them, getting my kids around and saying, today, we're going to listen to some hymns. But it's the weight <laughs> of the hymn book in your hand and the yeah. number on the board and knowing that that's what you're going to be singing, mm. which I rather enjoy. It's a lovely hymn as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 One of my favourite music teachers at school... Mrs. Williamson, told us that she'd chosen it for her wedding. And we all thought, oh, and it's only later I thought, no, 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 your song is love known when you get married. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) It could be rather off-putting. You could choose all sorts of terrible things. Well, the words of most hymns, let's face it, are not great. No. They don't stand alone, do they, as poetry? No, not really, no. In fact, they're clunky. (laughs) And the trouble is that there's usually one verse that you sort of know you can almost take yourself off book and sing along and then there are approximately 243 verses that you don't know and that you think probably the victorian writer ran out of some sort of inspiration along the way and you always have that embarrassing moment if you decide you're going to sing out (laughs) so if you're at a funeral or a wedding you think come on it's my duty now to really give it as much as I can. Exactly. Let's make a sound. Yeah. And then you start doing it, and then the scansion of the words is impossible. Also, nobody else is. Nobody That's the thing. That's the number of times that I thought, oh, I think this is still in my register in the morning. Oh, no, nobody else is. Something is is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Janet Ellis. 
Right, our next guest also appeared in part one of the best of my time capsule, but we couldn't let this episode go by without listening to Rick Wakeman talk about working with the great David Bowie. I met David first in 1968 with uh, producer August Dudgeon and also with Tony Visconti. And uh, cut a long story short, I did Space Oddity with him, then a few other tracks like Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud and whatever. And he said to me, I'd like you to do some piano for me. I said, okay, I'd love to. Uh, so I went round to his house. He had a house in Beckenham in Kent. And, uh, where he was from. Where he was from, yeah. Um, Haddon Hall. But, so I went round to his house and he had a minstrel's gallery in this house. Uh, the grand piano there and I didn't have a grand piano I had a, um, a little piano which was called 1917 uh, and a little terrace house in West Harrow uh, so to go to this magnificent house was just quite amazing and he just said I'm going to play you some songs which I'm going to put on the new album but I want them to be very piano orientated I said okay and he put some manuscript and paper he said can you make some notes I said yeah so he, he was playing these songs one after the other, just great songs. And I said, David, these are magnificent. And then he played Life on Mars. And I can remember just sitting back on the piano stool and going, that will live forever. Mm. And he said, you made some notes? I said, yeah. He said, uh, play it for me as a piano piece. And I said, well, how do you want me to play it? And he said, you know how I want you to play it. I said, well, I don't, that's why I'm asking you. He said, no, no, you know how I want you to play it, play it. Oh, so I played it and it finished, he went, that's how I want you to play it. Hmm. And uh, he gave me a bit of advice then, which has stuck with me ever since, and I've used ever since. He said, when you come to do your own albums and things, Rick, he said, always get hold of musicians who understand what you want. Because if they don't understand what you want, you'll never get what you want. He said, if you've got to tell them everything, he said, yeah, give direction, but if you've got to tell them everything, then they're the wrong musicians to use. Some great advice there from David Bowie via Rick Wakeman. Right, now in episode one of my Time Capsule 2020, we had a very short extract from my interview with Mark Gatiss. Rather too short, I thought. So here's some more. I love doing Q&As. I do them all the time. I just I love talking to people. I can do it for hours. I just find it so stimulating and fun. Often the problem is that the, the moderator, the interviewer, will ask you questions that everyone in the audience knows the answer to. Mm. Because they've come, that's why they've come. And you, and Tell I'll that say, story again. Yeah, and you, yeah. I said, there's a few things, just a few things off limits. Please don't ask me how we came up with Sherlock, how the League of Gentlemen met, and then they do it. And of course, you just kind of feel duty-bound, and I think, here we go again. I actually think sometimes think you're changing the story. You know, I remember years ago reading that Michael Gambon got so sick of answering the same questions that he started to claim interviews that he was gay, just just to change the record. And and then I think it kind of got some currency. And then Time Out interviewed him, and, and I think they sort of led with saying, "Is it true you're you're gay?" And he said, "Yeah, but well, I, I gave it up." <laughs> I said, why? And he said, it made my eyes water. <laughs> right, so we've got, basically, I, I bring you a time capsule into which you put what may seem insignificant things to other people, but to you are significant from your life. I'd have to put Doctor Who in there mm. because it's it's sort of almost my earliest memory and it's been obviously a huge part of my career. But there's a, there's a, if I can 
explain, I suppose, what it is. Literally, one of my earliest memories is, is watching John Pertwee's first story, uh, Spearhead from Space, where the Autons, the shop window dummies, come to life. And I, I was so frightened. I, can, I, have, I have memories of the fear, which is, you know what I mean? Um, I remember clutching my... My mum had a sheepskin coat, and I can remember clutching her skirts when we went past March the Taylor in Newton Aycliffe High Street because I was so frightened. I was four, four or five. And the reason I would put, I put that in is because it's that healthy fear is something I've always loved. It's not a negative memory. It's, a, it's something that still thrills me, you know. And Doctor Who being such an amazing sort of thread through my life, uh, I sort of, you know, carried the, the torch during the interregnum when it wasn't on. And then when it came back, I, was, I wrote for the first series of Christopher Eccleston and then for every subsequent Doctor. And um, it's just an amazing thing to sort of have. But the, the, the reason it's more than a TV programme is, is, is really, it's hard to describe because it's, it's partly nostalgia. It's partly an ongoing tapestry of things. But the, the thing that, if I can sort of quantify it, um, when I was a kid, there was something magic about where it was. It was usually on in the winter. It was a Saturday night. And to this day, even though Grandstand isn't on, the end of the sports report, it still makes me go a bit funny. Mm. It's sort of Proustian. Something about that moment of that, it's weirdly, it's the, it's the absolute opposite of Doctor Who. It's big butch men kicking a ball about in the freezing cold. <laughs> but what's about to come around the corner is magic. Yeah. And, and to this day, on a Saturday night, in Doctor Who's on Sundays now, but there's a sort of something in the air about it. And I can reproduce it if I want. If I remember when Doctor Who was off, when it... Uh, when it was cancelled in 1989 and before it came back, there was some point in the 90s that I, on a Saturday afternoon, it was just becoming crepuscular. It was just about you know, quarter, to, quarter to five, getting dark. I put the video of a John Pertwee story on and I felt it in the back of my neck. It was like, it, it, you can do this if you like. You can actually recreate these circumstances. And, it, and it's, very, it, it's very delicate. You can't, you know, it's like... It would just go in an instant. Mm. But there's something there's something in the DNA of the programme which still does that to me. Obviously, does it to an awful lot of people. Now, our next guest is Annika Rice, who became known to everyone in Britain when she took on her extraordinary challenges on television. But it seems she'd always rather enjoyed a challenge in life, or as she called it, Jeopardy. Okay, well, I'm going to put Jeopardy into the time capsule. Should we just put Jeopardy there? It's a very exciting choice, I have to say, and I'm with you on it. I think that actually that fear in life that you then overcome is a marvellous thing. Yeah. I mean, I went I went, went and auditioned when I lived in Hong Kong to be in tomfoolery, mm. which is all singing, as you know, and very clever, witty singing. I can't sing, Mike, but I just, <laughs> I just went for the audition just to experience, because I've always longed to sing, and I thought, that's so sad that I'll never get anywhere near singing. <laughs> so I thought, well, I can always just go and audition and pretend I'm a lame page. <laughs> and when I, I obviously look quite presentable, mm. and you could see the producers were quite exciting as this sort of presentable 
young lady, I was about 21 by then, who could perhaps be one of the, the gang in tomfoolery. And obviously I opened my mouth and I've got a very sweet choir voice because I always used to be in the school choir, but it's a very gentle little soprano voice. It's not a belting out. Mm. hilarious witty song voice and they were just so disappointed they really oh. tried to make it work couldn't get there oh, so anyway that. there we go i went to hong kong years and years ago uh early 80s yeah and the thing i remember the most exciting thing we did was we went and had lunch at the run run shore studios oh and, yes do you know them I used to do film dubbing there. Did you? After I, after I finished my news at nine, well, no, <laughs> 10 o'clock, after I'd done my bulletin, yeah. because everyone in Hong Kong has about 84 jobs, you know, you're just there to make money, basically. After I finished that, I used to get a cab, go straight to Run Run Shaw Studios, because dubbing went on quite late into the night for um, kung fu movies that needed to be translated <laughs> into English. So I was always, you know, girl three. And the translation was always a bit dodgy, so I'd end up having to say things like, my sir, you have a mighty sword. Can I hold it for you? <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> How funny. What were you doing there, Mike? I, I was doing a play. What year? Could it have been the same year? 84, I think it was. Oh, no, I, I, was, I was back in the UK by then. How mm. funny. Yeah. No, well, I used to sit there in a little dubbing suite. We used to smoke all night to about <laughs> two in the morning, fagging away with me going, sir, that's a mighty sword. Let me hold it for you. <laughs> I loved it. It was so... What I loved, again, it was all that fear and excitement of being in a completely parallel universe to perhaps one mm. that your leafy background in leafy UK could have yeah. prepared you for. I, I was all for getting as far away from anything sort of leafy and safe, I suppose. Well, that's about as far as you can get, isn't it? It's about, it really yeah. felt about as far as I could get. <laughs> How funny. Brilliant. That part of Hong Kong, you know, people talk about their expat life and going out on junks, which are obviously boats. And yeah. That sort of passed me by. I was just always in a grim studio or another grim studio. <laughs> but, you know, having the time of my life in terms of life experience, yeah. and in three years I'd got the experience that, honestly, it would have taken me 10 years to get, 20 years to get if I'd stayed in Britain, you mm. know. So by the time I got back, all my friends were coming out of university and I'd had this extraordinary university of life. Yep, I went to the university of life. I got a third. Unlike our next guest, whose life can only be regarded as a start first. It's the wonderful John Chalice, known to the whole world as Boise, telling us a story from his extraordinary career. Of course, sadly, since this recording was made, John Chalice has left us, but he will go on entertaining us for years and years to come. Anyway, television was, you know, 67, 68, there's a lot of telly about, you know, because it was the coming thing. Yeah. So I thought... Um, Move on, I suppose. And I got, I, you know, I got on the telly quite quickly. Um, newcomers, the newcomers, it was called, one of the first of the soap operas, and I got a nice part in that. And this was when uh, the great disappointment happened. Oh right! So this is because this is the one we're going to put in there that you. Yes, this is like where I was waiting. Of. I was waiting to start that, and the word came out that the Beatles were looking for someone to be in the magical mystery tour. <laughs> there was a part they couldn't find the right person for. So the world and his wife was going up for it, you can imagine. So my agent sort of said, well, everybody else has been up for it, you might as well get yourselves. Mate, the Beatles, you know, I mean, they were the, the real height of it then. Um, 
anyway, something clicked, and I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at this because you only get one chance, and uh, in I went. And uh, George Harrison wasn't there, and he was my favourite Beatle. <laughs> so I said to the other three, I said, uh, <clears throat> I thought there were four of you. Which is a good start, because Lennon said, no, George is just a cardboard cut out. <laughs> we sacked him years ago. <laughs> you see? And uh, <clears throat> so we got off quite well, and we, we found something in common, because uh, we both loved The Goon Show. About the same age as John Lennon, see? and we both grown up with The Goon and he, he had that sort of madcap sort of humour. And uh, so I found myself doing uh, Goon Show voices with John Lennon. Hello, John, how are you today? <laughs> I'm all right, John, and how are you today? Paul McCartney sitting in the corner going, oh, God, sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, extraordinary. <clears throat> anyway, it sort of went on from there, and he said, look, we don't know what we're doing. We haven't got a script or anything like that, so we're looking for people with ideas. Have you got a favourite Beatles tune? John. Uh, well, I said something then that still haunts me to this day, really, because um, I said, actually, I prefer the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, when it something blurts out of your mouth and you haven't engaged the breath. And I just went, what? I mean, what have you done? You've just blown it. I mean, you're getting on so well. And, and I was waiting to be shown the door, and eventually, a uh, long pause, and Lennon says, Actually, I think you're right. I prefer them sometimes, too. Yeah, very good. And he had that, that sort of. Humor, you know. He said, anyway, listen, listen, we start on Monday, you know, what if fancy to getting on the coach, you know, we don't know what we're doing, we don't know where we're going, but we'll see what happens, we'll have a blast. I always remember him saying, we'll have a blast. Yeah. So come and join us. And I got the job. Fantastic. And I walked out of there going, I must be the luckiest uh, person in the world, you know, even though I prefer the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I said, well, I'll just work with these guys before I meet my real heroes, you know. And I just thought, wait till I tell everybody this, you know, Christ. But I was unavailable. No. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realise. Uh, I didn't realise at the time that I'd said yes to the newcomers and the dates clashed by two days and the BBC wouldn't release me. Can you imagine? Oh, John. So I, I'd like to forget that one, if I, oh, but, I, but I, it still haunts me, as I say. What if? It's one of those, you know, we've all got them in our lives. What if? What yes. would have happened if? Yes. And, of course, I never saw them again. The much-loved and much-missed John Chalice. Our next guest is somebody I know John would have loved working with. From The Windsors, this time with Alan Partridge, Murder in Successville, The Other One, and the award-winning Inside Number 9 and Stathlet's Flats, here's Ellie White. Well, there are always a few things in one's life that you go, I really wish that had never happened. Mm. And I think that's, that's inevitable in life. Yeah. Um, but then... The majority, you go, God, this is cheesy. No, this makes me who I am. But it absolutely does, especially in comedy. I feel like the more embarrassing moments in life are the most informative for yeah, me. Because that's generally what you're being asked to portray, isn't it, in comedy? Yeah, definitely. Um, but shall I, shall I start? Absolutely. Any way you like. Okay, well, my first one, <laughs> this is quite sort of definitely why you would do a podcast with someone younger but my first thing that i want to put in my time capsule is the website youtube <laughs> for me personally it is like the ultimate kind of democratic 
it's, it's almost like a, a book about modern life, essentially, because anyone can put anything on there. Mm. And there is, there's millions and millions of videos. I mean, I don't know why I'm describing the, the, what YouTubers, everyone knows. But some things that you find on there are so exceptionally weird and amazing. And you would never, ever see them otherwise. No. And I think it has opened, certainly opened my eyes to some seriously worrying and funny and amazing like content i mean i spend so many hours scrolling through youtube finding weird stuff finding funny stuff it's like a kind of library mm. for me of like the most amazing stuff so in lockdown i started to do some embroidery um like my granny did mm. and um had no idea how to do it. YouTube told me immediately. YouTube told me every sort of complex stitch, everything, every single thing is on there. And not only one video, but like thousands of videos yeah. that people have put on YouTube of like a strange little Eastern European girl being like, and then you put the needle through and pull it through and then pull it back and pull it down. And everyone has their own platform to tell their story and do their thing and do flower arranging. Or like there's this incredible phenomenon on youtube called asmr have you heard of that no what is it okay i'm going to do a demonstration <laughs> i'm going to do a demonstration <laughs> okay it's where you speak very very softly into a microphone and people find it hypnotic i think some people find it arousing right um, most people find it kind of relaxing and hypnotic and it's kind of like this it's like okay so i'm going to um get this um knife and I'm going to cut the cake and I'm going to put the cake slice on this plate and it's like that <laughs> well I'm very turned on <laughs> oh thank you thank you that was that was my goal but it's got some of the videos on there have millions of views millions wow and you just think I mean I mean I'm one of them I'm one of the people that watches this stuff so I can't shout at anyone else for it but it is so weird. There's also another phenomenon on there called mukbang, which I think started in South Korea or China. And it's quite disgusting, really, but it's fascinating. It's where people eat vast quantities of food <laughs> by themselves on YouTube whilst talking. So they'll have like a plate of like noodles so high and they'll just eat them and talk. To the, and it's supposed to be about... So that if you're, say, eating alone at night, yeah. you can put on a mukbang video and you'll have company. And have a disgusting guest. Yeah, and what? have an absolutely revolting guest who's, like, slurping and eating really loudly. <laughs> but it's supposed to be about sort of taking people out of isolation when they eat. Right. And, like, a kind of meeting online. Fascinating. I just find that sort of stuff fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> the comments underneath YouTube videos is honestly, like, a whole just mind fuck, yeah. if you will of who are these people, trolls, keyboard warriors. Mm -hmm. You know, you watch a video, a Justin Bieber music video on there, and then there'll be like an entire political discussion going on underneath. It has nothing to do with the video. Wow. It's layers and layers of unpicking. And I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. YouTube is worrying. I do feel like quite a voyeur on that. Mm. And I don't have Instagram anymore and or Twitter. So I, I do feel like a bit of a sort of floating fly above that world, which is quite fun. Mm. But I get I get a sort of really weird recommendations now. So I got it. Okay, I don't know why. I don't know if I should be admitting this, but 
at the beginning of lockdown when everyone was going really mad i got into watching like nature videos of insects right <laughs> right carry on <laughs> so like spiders and scorpions and stuff and i had my recommended page I started getting recommended these videos of this man who puts different insects in a cage and watches them fight. <laughs> so I got recommended like leech versus scorpion, who will win? And I found myself like on my phone at like 8am, just watching, mindlessly watching this video. Of, like, Come on, leech. Literally doing that. And then I think my boyfriend came in and was like, you are descending into the depths of somewhere very, very horrendous i'm a bit embarrassed of choosing youtube but i also think i've sold it well yeah you have absolutely brilliant that's the first thing i'm going to do when we finish this interview is waste my life on youtube yeah <laughs> i think as well when someone finds my time capsule they'll be because probably in 10 years there'll be something new yeah like youtube won't exist anymore so mm. it's, it's quite a good relic yeah of the internet age and they'll say she was so cultured <laughs> look at that oh scorpions against slugs how interesting <laughs> the scorpion won by the way of course as you yeah. would imagine but the, the leech put up a good fight <laughs> which i was surprised by <laughs> all right we're going to put youtube into yes. your time capsule yeah that's item number one what's number two we're going to take a short break here for some adverts we'll be back in a moment When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. Now, it's always interesting to hear what people choose to put in their time capsule because they want to banish it from their life. We've had some very odd choices, but the podcaster and comedian Richard Herring chose possibly the most unusual and certainly the most personal. The last thing I would like to put into this is the bad thing that mm -hmm. I'd rather forget, uh, which is a, vaguely the sense of touch. It's my swollen testicle. <laughs> In 2002, I went on holiday uh, with my then-girlfriend. Uh, she was not my girlfriend at the end of the holiday. 
<laughs> and, um, but it was just the time when I was, I went out with a few actresses in a row and they were, it was a very dramatic and exciting time, mm-hmm. but going out with this particular actress made me decide that, uh, I would stop going out with actresses. <laughs> very, was, very wise that was, that was, uh, which I uh, nearly stuck to. Uh, and uh, this isn't a, a, a famous person. I did go out with a famous actor around the time that people will know, and uh, this what she was uh, a handful as well. But uh, <laughs> this wasn't her. Uh, and uh, I'd met her a friend of friend, and we sort of got together. But she was she was a little bit nuts and made some weird statements that I didn't entirely agree with. But there were again, it was something like something had clicked between us. I mean, and also I should point out, I was also nuts at this time. So I'm not saying. Oh, crazy women, crazy actresses. I was off the, you know, the reason this we were together is because we were both, you know, not really thinking and not really compasmentous. And it was exciting to be with someone a bit crazy for both of us, I think. Um, uh, and so we went to Barbados for a week. Um, the day before we went on holiday, I was doing a gig and I was I, we, I was arguing with my girlfriend. And I, she wouldn't come and meet me. I said, well, come stay at mine because we're going to the airport first thing in the morning. She said, no, I'm not coming. I'll meet you at the airport. And I was going, that's insane. Why? why not? And we had this big argument. I can't remember much about it, but I couldn't really understand what was going on. And then when we were on the holiday, uh, she kept going off and saying she had phone calls. She had to do phone calls or something going on. <laughs> and um, uh, as it transpired... The, her previous boyfriend, she'd been with him the night before she'd... Uh, oh, my God. And he'd proposed to her, and so they were then rigging up about that and whatever. But then she went on holiday. But I didn't, yeah. So she still came on holiday. We'd had this big blowout, but we'd already booked the holiday, and, and then so just everything on the holiday was awful, except there was a brilliant chef there who made this brilliant lobster and mashed potato that I still is one of my favourite things I've ever eaten. That was the only good <laughs> thing. Why don't more people put lobster with mashed potato? <laughs> it was amazing. When you hear it, it's It was obvious. amazing. Uh, and the lobster was just incredible. Uh, but yeah, it was just all these things went, you know, it was, she was disappearing off to party with people she knew on the island and leaving me behind. But I think on the second day, I got in the sea and uh, it was quite wavy and I got hit by a wave and I got spun around and it hit my head on the gra- on a sort of stone. But for some reason, I must have hit something else as well. But for some reason, one of my testicles swelled up to about four or five times its size. It's right. your, and it's already impressive size when it's normal. But it was it was like a sort of tennis ball sized testicle. Well, thank God, I was worried that it was her that was responsible. <laughs> it was well, it wasn't. It was entirely an accident. But it was typical of this holiday where I barely spent any time with her. She was just throwing up fun. I was just you know, and I, even if I'd wanted to have any fun, it would have been quite difficult and painful. <laughs> so I just had this, you know, I'd ripped some stomach line as well. I'd quite quite badly hurt, but I didn't go to the doctor or anything about it. Um, the testicle sums up the, the holiday. I didn't find out about the the proposal till after we'd broken up. But the flight home from Barbados, my testicle acted as a like an altimeter <laughs> in that it had hurt it just the the atmospheric pressure changed as the plane got higher and my ball hurt. <laughs> the more, the higher we got the more it hurt. As I was just sort of in pain <laughs> for seven days in pain with someone that we'd basically fallen out with we got a cab back from the airport, and I don't think we officially had broken up, but that was the end of the relationship. So either I'm in the cab or afterwards we broke up. And then Al told me, because he was friends with her friend, and said, oh, you know, she got proposed to the night before. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't know that. And she denied it. 
and then I went through. I had all the phone numbers that from the hotel room. So she spent about a hundred quid ringing, <laughs> ringing from the hotel room like every day. And I rang the, the one that was being rung a lot, and the guy, the guy answered, and so I knew it was. Oh, I knew it was him. So it was a very bad experience. Uh, I don't uh, absolve myself from blame. I'm not wasn't a perfect man in any sense of the time. I'd lent her quite a lot of money. But she's the only person in my life who ever eventually paid that money back. She paid me back. It was like a few thousand pounds. Yeah. And she paid me back just as I was proposing to my wife. And, I mean, I didn't use the money for that, but it, the money covered the cost of the engagement <laughs> to my wife. But, you know, it was interesting. No one else has ever paid me back. I mean, we were not a good match. But there was, it was that thing where it was... Are you friends now? I mean, yeah, we don't see her. But I think we've... We, I don't think... I don't. I don't. I actually. I think it was such an important thing to go through. I think I've been through a lot of relationships, in professionally and personally, where I was prepared to be a bit of a punch bag and to put up with people behaving badly. And that one made me decide: no, I've got to have a bit more self-respect and not yeah. not put up with that. I think, like subsequently, I think you know, it was that. I think we did sort of hook up a few times, even after we'd broken up. So it wasn't like. You know, there was something very, there was something physically between the two of us. There was no smell. That's what that was. Should have <laughs> no. been. If I'd known about the smell, that would have tipped me in the right direction. But yeah, there was something where we were very excited to be with each other, and it was it was that thrill of the drama of craziness, you know. And yeah. I, and, I, and I think that holiday sums it up. Neither of us were ready to be in a solo relationship, and this is what I'm talking about. You know, I think subsequently you sort of realised if we just said. Should we just just go and fuck each other for three months and uh, enjoy that and have and a then, holiday while we're doing it? <laughs> and go on holiday, and if you want to, if you want to get to go out with your boyfriend the night before, that's fine. Um, then it would have probably worked perfectly. But you know, you, I didn't have the mental understanding to say, yeah, I'm not sure that I want to be in a relationship with someone right now. And she certainly wasn't obviously clearly. No. <laughs> she didn't marry the guy. No, she, she didn't accept the proposal. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's just, it's that sort of level of craziness. Yeah. So I am, I don't want to have a swollen testicle again. And I no, don't, no, I don't want to be in, I don't want to have to go in this way. into the time capsule. We're going to seal it up. It's and, sealed up. Uh, it's safe. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to open that time capsule, actually. Right, while we're talking bollocks, here's a conversation I had with the Reverend Richard Coles. Do you know, have you been to a CC? I'm sure you must have been. I have, yes. Yes. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is it true that the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi, which is below the Great Basilica there, yeah. was revealed by an earthquake? Well, one hesitates to rain on the parade mm. but there are all sorts of elements in hagiography where perhaps what actually happened has been rather taken up with what people would have liked to have happened and the story acquires a certain luster and gloss as a result so i it's very interesting it's like when you go to the holy land and you step in the footsteps of jesus well you know there's percentage chances of that being the case there are bits where you know you absolutely do the steps up to the temple are the same as whether in first century so you know you're following there but people you know they like those stories those stories are meaningful mm. they settle and uh, and people kind of you know think okay i'll have some of that yes it's extraordinary isn't it how for some people the wonder of those places has no effect whatsoever i once followed a bunch of english school children 
into the tomb of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. So you walk down the steps. There were people prostrate on the floor. They'd walked up the hill on their knees. And this bunch of schoolchildren pushed their way through this devout crowd. And then they fell silent. And I thought, finally, finally they get it. And then one voice, this young lad, said, I ain't got a fucking signal. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, Mike, in a very real sense... Ain't we all got no fucking signal? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's my sort of vicar. I've played a number of vicars in my time, but the person I would always cast in such a role, in fact, in almost any role, would be the star of Cold Feet and Toast of London, Robert Bathurst. Did you row at at university? I I rowed. Rowing at university was... I did uh, for a term. I was at, at a college... Um, Pembroke College, and and we we had a novices eight, in other words, so, so first up. And I and but the trouble was, I was doing shows in the evening and rowing at, at seven in the morning. Uh, something had to give. Mm. Law studies, I have to say, did take take a bit of a knock as well. <laughs> uh, but that was for, for that was general. Um, yeah, I did, I did, I, I rowed, and there was uh, I rowed at number seven, and the boy at number eight, the stroke was uh, a boy called Bellringer. I had to write a report on the race um, for the college paper or whatever. And uh, the only race I ever rode in, um, Bellringer caught a crab and ended up in my lap. Um, and I, I earned his undying hatred by, by headlining the report, A Clanger by Bellringer. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so that was the only rowing I, um, I, uh, I, I, I rode in. Because you are tall, you're a tall man. So, tall, I mean, yeah. They, they, my they uncle, would go my, for you, My they? uncle rode in the, in the boat race. In, uh, in 1952, when Oxford sank, and there was a programme, Brian English used to present a programme called All Our Yesterdays, uh, which included a tiny clip of Oxford sinking with uh, the Cambridge boat in the background. And we used to always, before, and look at it, used to go, one, two, three, four, five, six, there's Roger. <laughs> Robert Bathurst, one of the true gents of the acting world. And, in fact, a contemporary of our next guest, the comedian and impressionist, as she's now known, Jan Ravens. But I think this clip demonstrates that she's much more than that, and, at the same time, how diverse the intake of students was at Cambridge in the 1970s. How did you get to that world, Jan? That's extraordinary. I mean, clearly through hard work and working hard at school, but it's a big jump, isn't it, Birkenhead? It was my art teacher, really. My art teacher... um directed the school plays and she was someone called Mary Metcalf and she was sort of like she had these sort of um very slim sort of um Bambi-ish legs with very sort of fine ankles and a well-turned calf and <laughs> she was one of those teachers I don't know if you had them in your school she would all make all her own dresses but she'd sort of have one pattern but make this one pattern in all different fabrics and it was very fitted she had very good breasts very slim waist and so she had this flowing dress going out to just um, just on the knee. And she was very, she was had beautiful auburn hair and freckly and very toothy. And um, she was quite sexy, I suppose, for thinking back on it. But she would direct the school plays. And I really wanted to be an actress, you know, from being quite young. Because uh, I was from the same uh, town, small town as Glenda Jackson. And so I thought, oh, if Glenda can do it, I can get out, you know, I can go, I can go to the RSC, I can be in a Hollywood movie. So I really wanted to be Glenda Jackson, um, you know, and the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too, and all that business. <laughs> and uh, 
And so anyway, I, I couldn't go to drama school because you couldn't get a grant to go to drama school, but you could get a grant to go to teach a training college. And my art teacher who did the school plays, she'd been to Homerton in Cambridge, which was the teacher training college. Oh, you must go to Homerton, you know, punting on the backs and all that and marvellous. And I thought, well, that's a good alternative. You know, I can do drama at Cambridge. And then I, and because um, my dad and I had always watched, you know, things like Monty Python and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and stuff on the telly. Um, I, ha- I had an inkling of the whole kind of footlights thing. And so I thought, yeah, Cambridge would be a good place to go. And, and I went down for an interview, you know, and it was so beautiful. So do you think that uh, that your chameleon nature, which you're so <laughs> famous for, really, did you develop that before you went there? Or was it a, a result of, you know, when you go to these places, you really think you must turn up with a chip on your shoulder, don't you? Because you think these posh people are not going to want me in their gang. Well, well looking back on it, I mean, it's, it's, it sort of goes two ways, really. Because while I felt very... Um, sort of out of place and insecure and imposter syndrome and all that. I also look back at what I did and I was infused with this kind of amazing confidence. I mean, in my first year, I think I wrote and directed a, a musical um, based on around Beatles songs called Every Person, which was like the Everyman story, only it was called Every Person and it was about a woman sort of trying to find herself in, you know, the modern world kind of thing. And it was all done with the characters from Everyman, the medieval um, mystery play, and written around Beatles songs. And I sort of think, and it was like a sort of, you know, (laughs) prototype Mamma Mia. (laughs) (laughs) I think, how did I have the nerve to do that? And then I directed, you know, the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, and I was bossing all these people, and I choreographed it. You ended up as president of the Footlights, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the first woman president, but but I think that was just a sort of a moment, really. I think um, uh, our mutual friend Martin Bergman, who was uh, president a couple of years before me, and then Robert Bathurst was president the year before me, and I think Martin sort of decided this would be a great sort of um, thing to do to have a, a woman. And, and when I when I became the, the president, I thought, why have they never had a woman to do this before? Because basically, it's a load of slog. Yeah. You know, you've got to book the tour, you've got to, you know maintain the club room you know it's like why did a woman never do this before it's a pain in the bum yeah but anyway um yeah but then so. that theme carries on through your career I, you were also the first female comedy producer at, at radio four weren't you yes yes <laughs> yeah and that was another story of like you know what the hell am i doing here it was um uh, yes, in a, in a corridor full of men. I mean, well, there were women as well, but the women were all secretaries. Mm. And the women had to sort of, you know, bring cups of tea. And, uh, and apparently there was, there was the head of the light entertainment department, and he was called Bobby J. Mm. And Bobby J was like, hello. And he had a sort of moustache. <laughs> and, uh, and apparently he gathered the male producers when I was due to arrive and said, now, look, we might have to sort of, you know, bear in mind, you know, we've got a woman coming in to be a producer, you know, bear in mind, might be certain times of the month where we have to tread a bit carefully, you know, and all that. <laughs> and um, it was an amazing time, actually. I mean, it was a real baptism of fire because you had to sort of go around trailing other producers, so watching what they were doing. And then suddenly you got thrown in at the deep end. And because of the way programmes were scheduled, so there was Week Ending, which was like the topical satirical show of the time. And then there was there was sort of all the panel games and things like that. And then I did a pilot of um, a, a sort of sketch show called Three Plus One, where I sort of reversed 
the formula of there being three men and one woman in a sketch show, and we had three women and one man. Mm. And in the pilot, we had um, Alison Steadman, Denise Coffey, and Emma Thompson, <laughs> and then Nicholas Le Prevot was the was the straight man. Uh. And then uh, Emma Emma was too busy to do the series. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And sadly, too busy to do my time capsule. So far, we live in hope. Still, this next guest will do. It's the delightful stand-up comedian, Stephen K. Amos. And that's your first item, Stephen? That's my first item, yes. Lovely. What's your second? My second item is the last tax disc of a car that I owned when I was 19 years of age. Right. And that car is a VW Volkswagen Beetle uh, bright orange. Oh, perfect. Bright orange. That car was my pride and joy. Mm. I mean, VW Beetles of that era now are considered collector's items. Absolutely. But for me, this got me around town. This was my first car that I bought myself. If I could put the car itself in the capsule, I would. Mm. But this gave me independence. I would go out. uh, I was still living at home with my parents. And so I'd go out for a drive if I wanted to. <laughs> uh, I could I could just, you know, get sit in the car if I wanted to and play music. Mm. I, I was the designated driver for my four amazing friends. My best friend back in the day was a guy called Justin. And me and him would just drive around London in this orange beetle, just music blaring out <laughs> and just having fun. Yeah. And it just gave me a level of of kind of independence that I'd never known before. And I could, you know, I could lie to my parents and say I was going to the shops or I was going to see an aunt or I could say anything, but it meant I was going out of the house. They trusted me because I was in my own car mm. and it was amazing. They were fantastic cars as well, weren't they? I mean, they still are. Absolutely. And, and I do, if you recall, but there was that very famous um, trilogy of films, I think, uh, Herbie. Herbie, love uh, You know, Herbie, the, yeah. yeah. And I had one of those cars. <laughs> and in those days, they, they weren't expensive, but it meant I was cool. Yeah. And in those days as well, everybody who had a Beetle, if you drove down the road, someone could, coming towards you, if a Beetle, you'd flash your lights to each other. <laughs> That was a little sort of code thing. And in the back window of my Beetle, I had a sticker. And the sticker was from a nightclub I used to go to with Justin. Mm. And it said, Dance Wicked. <laughs> and this club was underneath the arches in Vauxhall in southwest London. Yeah. And one of the regular DJs was a guy called Jazzy B, who ends up being the main man of Soul to Soul. Wow. And having global worldwide hits. But myself and Justin, we were there at the beginning. So we thought that we were the we had our fingers on the pulse. <laughs> it was amazing. So that gives me a really, really fond memory of independence, but also it gives me memories of, of being judged. Mm. And I'll tell you why. Um, back then I lived in Ballam, southwest London, and uh, I was in the West End with Justin, and it's probably about a half-hour drive home. Yeah. And on my way home with Justin, probably about one, two in the morning, we got stopped by the police three times. 
Three times. Three different police. In one journey. Yeah, in one journey. Good God. And to give you context, Justin, my best friend at the time, is a white lad. We'd known each other for a good few years. He was horrified. Yeah. Because he'd never been stopped by the police. And it's a half an hour journey. And I was like, I'm on a beetle. Yeah. This, this is hardly the, the drug dealer car of choice. <laughs> it was only at that, because I'd been stopped by the police before, you know, in cars or otherwise, quite a few times. But it was the first time that I'd had a friend with me who'd seen it for his own eyes. Yeah. Because there was no reason to stop the car. There was no, you know, uh, rear lights are off or I was indicating incorrectly. Nothing. No. But in the half-hour journey to get from the West End to Ballum, three different police cars stopped me and they give it the producer. It was back in those days, they used to call it the producer, where they say on Monday or within seven days, you must produce your insurance, licence, MOT at a police station. Mm. Three times? Yeah. Yeah. In one night. Oh, my word. Well, this is a world that we privileged white people just don't know. But I've not got a single friend who's black who's not suffered this awful injustice. And I think that's probably why, you know, if we're talking about the current day where there's all this BLM protests and whatever, I think it's because I've never vocalised this before, for example. No. And I know lots of my uh, black family members or black friends would never say this because we assume it happens all the time. Suck it up. Mm. And so our white friends never hear about it. And we don't have that dialogue. No. No. Do you know what I mean? It was only, as I say, because my friend saw it for himself. Not once, not three times in one night. Yeah. You know, it's just extraordinary. Well, it's about time people knew, isn't it? I think so. I think it's about time that we listen to each other. Yeah. Listen and allow people to express how something has made them feel Mm. without interruption. Mm. You know, you may want to challenge it, but listen. That's where we have to start. Yeah. Stephen K. Amos. And now one of the great storytellers, the writer, Andy Hamilton. My second thing is a box set DVD of I, Claudius, because I think it'd be good to have something to convey how brilliant a thing television can be. Yeah. You know, I just think that that's the show that most epitomises the best of television because the writing is brilliant and the the acting is fantastic and it doesn't matter that some of the camera shots are wobbly and occasionally the set moves, you know, because the mm. story is so gripping. And, and, and the sections, say, with Caligula, are the best examples of sort of black comedy mm. and it's moving. And and we used to, sometimes as a family, we would watch it in one go, you know, straight through from start to finish. And uh, a while back, there was a, a special anniversary edition of um, Robin Ince and Brian Cox's show, The Infinite Monkey Cage. Mm. And it was like a sort of mega version, uh, which was filmed. And they had lots of, people who've been on the show coming back and, you know, it sort of was like four shows in one. So I walked into this green room and in the corner, looking rather quiet, uh, was Brian Blessed. That's unusual. So I know. So, it, yeah, it didn't last. So anyway, <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I'll just make, you know, 
break the ice. I said, oh, hi, Brian, I'm Andy. And I said, I've, I've got to tell you, in our house, we watched Sly Claudius. Uh, we've watched it through many times from start to finish. It's the most fantastic series. And your portrayal of Augustus was just wonderful. And your death scene was is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. You know, you know most extraordinary death scene I've ever seen. And he went, yes, it was voted. Most extraordinary death scene by a screen magazine or something. <laughs> I'm not surprised because it's brilliant. And I said, I've never seen anything like it. Because I don't know, for those who don't know the scene, he dies in front of you, but he doesn't close his eyes. So you see the light going out inside his head. And then he is as dead as a, looks as dead as a fish on a slab, you know. But the camera stays on him throughout this whole process. And it's about, it must be about two and a half minutes, three minutes. Mm. And the camera just pushes in and pushes in and pushes in. And he doesn't flicker. I mean, there's not, you know, it's extraordinary. And it's more, I can't really do it justice. It's not just, it, there's something, it, it's an extraordinary piece of acting. Anyway, I said to him, you know, it's a remarkable. He said, I know, I know. <laughs> You know, that director, Herbie White, fucking hated me. <laughs> and I, said, I said, oh, right. Well, he said, yes. He said, you know what the bastard said to me? He said, we're going to keep the camera on you while Sean does a speech for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said that they, interestingly, they had a bit of um, curtain behind him. Yeah. The play chamber just wobbling the curtain because the director didn't want people thinking it was just a freeze frame. Yeah. It's got to be movement in it, but he yeah. couldn't move. And uh, anyway, so then I made the mistake of saying, yeah, but how did you do it? I mean, because it's just, it's just, the, just the mental process. I said, how do you do it? He said, I'll show you. You say action. Go on. I said, sorry, what? He said, say action. So, <laughs> and by now the whole room was listening, you know, so I said, uh, action. And he did it. He, he just went into this. You just saw the light go out in his eyes and he stared in the space and it was quite eerie. Yeah. The room went quiet and we're just sitting there looking at Brian being dead and then he suddenly went, that's how I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, on to our last clip of this compilation episode and it's someone who always lifts my spirits. I hope he does the same for you. Here's the wonderful Rufus Hound. I think um, the point I, I would always offer anybody who is unsure about the Muppets is this, is that the moral of basically every Disney story is we're all the same, right? People, we're all the same. So be kind to each other. Mm. Whereas Jim Henson's philosophy that underpins everything the Muppets do is we're all different, so be kind to each other. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think that, that that, to me, is the winning philosophy, is, yes, all right, you know, we're, we're all made of the same uh, miraculously um, motivated meat, but actually who we are and what we're about and the things that motivate us are all different enough that it's easy for us all to feel that we're somewhat alone. 
Mm. Whereas I think that the understanding that we're all different means that you can recognize that that makes you the same as everyone. <laughs> yeah. Far more easily than just being told, hey, we're all the same. You think, well, that's not, no, I'm, I'm really not the same as lots of people I've met. <laughs> no. So uh, it, it's basically why when you see the Muppets, you know, it's a frog and a pig and a monster and a bear. And there is something that brings all of them together and they want to work together and they want to produce something great. Yeah. But they're all very different. And so they have to make allowances for one another's difference. And the Muppet show is people putting on, or, you know, Muppets, creatures, beings, putting on a show. So I think there is something that I I really respond to in the idea of your life and your work being the same thing and that you're motivated and that there's drive towards actually manufacturing something at the end of it. I yeah. don't do very well with just living. I do very well with working um, because I know, I, I know where working is going. I know what the end result of that is meant to be. Whereas the living is like, but you know, we got up, washed ourselves, uh, <laughs> dressed, uh, you know, eight, and then went to bed yesterday. Why do we have to do that again today? <laughs> <laughs> I think as well, at the end of life, there's no big kind of round of applause or like moment where people go, yes, well, well done, you've you smashed That's that. It. Or, yeah, you, go, you, got the, you got the perfect day right at the end there. That's <laughs> one, of, one of my favourite jokes is uh, I like to live life as if every day is my last. I like falling in and out of a coma with my family around me weeping. <laughs> You have been listening to The Best of My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and various guests, all of whom are available to listen to in full in their own episodes. You can find My Time Capsule on all decent podcast providers. We recommend Acast, through whom we make this podcast, but of course it's up to you. And if you subscribe, you'll get all new episodes as they become available. Or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram to see what we're up to. This was a cast-off production. The music was by Pass the Peas Music, and the producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thank you for listening, and if you've been with us from the beginning, thank you for listening again. Fun, wasn't it? Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 